Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Thursday morning, the 26th of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Gardaí are to be given new powers, allowing them to use facial recognition technology to identify criminals from CCTV footage. The Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, will hopefully explain how this will work in practice when she joins us in about a half an hour from now. But there are serious concerns about the Minister's proposal. The Irish Council for Civil Liberties is objecting to this technology being used and we begin our programme today with Liam Herrick who is its Executive Director. Good morning Liam and thanks uh, for joining us uh, to tell us uh, the arguments uh, against. You say these powers pose extreme risks to human rights. Explain what you mean by that please. Well well, Michael the first thing I'm supposed to say about it is that yes the, the whole area of police use of facial recognition technology is hugely controversial internationally because of the potential to have a very significant effect on human rights, democratic rights and privacy. But in terms of trying to analyse what the Minister's proposal is, the great difficulty that we all have at the moment is that we don't actually know. Uh, the Minister gave a speech to the Guard Representative Association this week. She briefed um, the press beforehand that she was going to propose uh, at the announcement of facial recognition technology, but there's virtually no detail in terms of what's being proposed, and it's it's deeply unsatisfactory, I think, for the public and indeed um, members of the Oireachtas mm. to be trying to discuss a very important issue with very profound effects with no real detail. Uh, and I think that th- that is a practice that is growing up with this government of announcing ideas but actually not putting forward proposals for people to analyse. Um, what we do know is that there already is before the Oireachtas a bill, the Garda Digital Recording Bill, which covers a huge range of areas to do with uh, surveillance, CCTV, digital recording, and so on. Uh, it's very complex and detailed, and we've been before the Oireachtas on it and engaging in it. Um, it does not allow for the use of facial recognition technology. That was the view of the Data Protection Commission when they presented before the Oireachtas. So what it seems to be is the minister is going to bring forward additional amendments that would allow the use of facial recognition technology in policing. Um, She says it will only be used for serious crime and won't involve mass surveillance. But we're not aware of any system of police use of facial recognition technology around the world, which is able to have such a focused use. 
Um, it is intrinsically a tool of mass surveillance and involves the capacity to track individuals by identifying their face, which is a unique intrinsic identifier and matching it to a database. Uh, there are problems about the tracking because that allows the guards to track people across public spaces. And there's problems about the database because they've proven to be inaccurate, but also the building up of the database is effectively an act of mass surveillance. So there's problems at every level of this, but we are somewhat wrestling with something that we don't know the full detail of yet. Okay. So there are the uh, basis for the questions or for the concerns that you have uh, and uh, it's how it works in practice uh, that uh, you want clarity on. Yeah, so I mean, the, the, what's interesting about this and, and I'm just back from um, Brussels where there's the, the, the main conference on privacy and data protection the annual one in Brussels this week this is a hot topic of discussion because at the European level there are moves to ban the use of facial recognition technology by police and in public spaces. The European Data Protection Board and European Data Protection Supervisor have made a call that this type of use of facial recognition technology should be prohibited. And they say that having facial recognition technology used by police is effectively reducing the human face human personality to treating it the same way we treat car number plates because it's a similar technology in terms of matching a face to a database as it is in terms of matching number plates to a database of number plates as happens for example on tolls and through police surveillance and so on. and they've said that the power of this technology could affect the right to protest, freedom of movement, freedom of association. So the dangers are so significant that they don't believe it can be proportionate. Mm. So there's also efforts at the European level to develop laws on artificial intelligence. This is a form of artificial intelligence. And again, there are proposals on the table that within that artificial intelligence regulation, there should be a ban on police use of facial recognition technology. So it would seem that if the minister wants to bring forward legislation in this area, it might be counter to European law. That shouldn't be anything new to us because the record of the Department of Justice with regard to respecting European law around data protection and data retention is poor. And we've seen recent cases in the European Court of Justice when Ireland has been found to be acting illegally. So I, I would say we have a lot of problems with how the state deals with data protection now. To throw this into the mix at this stage just seems very irresponsible. Okay. Does it recognise some faces better than it recognises other faces? Does it recognise black faces better than it recognises white faces or uh, male and female uh, differentiations? Yeah, I mean, this has been a problem in practice where such systems have operated that um, it's to do with how the databases are built up and they have uh, very often had inherent biases in them that they find it difficult to distinguish between people from certain ethnic groups so you get false positives there and also with regard to women rather than men. I should say that this is all happening at a time when the, the main company that builds up the databases, it's a company called Clearview Artificial Intelligence, uh, is the subject of legal actions all around the world for how it illegally scraped 
the websites and social media platforms to get images of people to build up these databases. The databases were built illegally and we've had authorities in the US, Canada, France, Italy, Australia and in the UK finding Clearview or prosecuting them for acting illegally. So there, there is a, a kind of a crime at the heart of all of this and we have no detail about how Angarda Shikona proposes to build up uh, a database here. Do you trust Angarda um, Shikona? Well, it's not a question of trusting individual guards or not, uh, but what we do know is that the track record of Angarda Shikona with regard to data protection is particularly poor. And it's not just us saying this. The Data Protection Commission, the state's regulatory body in this area, has initiated a number of inquiries which are ongoing into the uh, respect for data protection law by Angarda Shikona in areas such as their use of CCTV. So where do we stand at the moment? We know that the guards are massively under-resourced in investigating cybercrime, such as child sexual abuse, that they need more staff and more resources to do that. That should be the urgent problem. And we also know that they don't have adequate processes or training internally to respect data protection law already. In that context, to ignore those two problems and instead bring in another issue, which is adding in a highly complex and controversial area of facial recognition technology, seems incredibly misplaced. And we would really urge the minister to focus on the outstanding problems in this area, including the guards needing more resources, rather than giving them a whole other area of responsibility, which I think is going to lead to much more problems. Okay, Liam, we'll leave it there for the moment and we'll be putting the point you've made to us uh, this morning uh, to the Minister, Helen McEntee, when she joins us uh, around a quarter to ten, the scheduled time for this morning's interview. So thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, and putting this into context for all of us ahead of uh, that interview with uh, the Minister. That's Liam Herrick, who is uh, the Executive Director of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Now, we're going to spend some time today talking uh, about American gun laws uh, and how you can go down to uh, the local shop uh, and buy a Brexit a breakfast roll in an AK-47 if uh, that's the way you are inclined. Uh, it's obviously caused a, a lot of uh, controversy in, in America and uh, the governor of Texas was giving a, a press conference yesterday. There was a, an interruption uh, from Beto O'Rourke, who is a, a Democrat candidate to become the next governor of Texas. So sit down. You're out of, you're out of line and an embarrassment. Hey. Sit down. Don't play this stuff. The next shooting is right now and you're doing nothing. No, you should give his ass... And at this time, I will uh, pass the mic to Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Sit down. You're out of you're out of line and an embarrassment. Sit down. I don't play this stuff. The next shooting is right now, and you are doing nothing. No, you should get his ass out of here. This isn't the place to talk to this over. This is totally predictable. Better work then left uh, the hall uh, as he was asked to, uh, but he spoke to reporters outside afterwards. Because the governor of the state of Texas, the most powerful man in the state, chose to do nothing. He went to Santa Fe High School after kids were killed in their classrooms, told the parents he would do something. He did nothing. He came to my hometown of El Paso after 23 people were slaughtered. He said he was going to do something. He did nothing. In fact, the only thing he did was make it easier to buy a gun. The only thing he did was make it easier to carry a gun in public. And he bragged about the fact that there would be no background check, no training, 
no vetting whatsoever. You know, he, he talked about that this was evil. The only thing evil is what he continues to do to the people of this state. He says this was unpredictable. It was totally predictable. And I predict this will continue to happen when you continue to have a governor who will not stand up for the people of Texas. His only interest is the gun lobby. He's scheduled to speak at the NRA convention this Friday in Houston, Texas, just days after these kids were slaughtered right here in Uvalde. After they were slaughtered at Santa Fe High School, at Sutherland Springs, in Midland, Odessa, in El Paso, Texas, five of the worst mass shootings in U.S. history right here in this state in the last five years. He was governor for every single one of them. And after every one of these, he holds a press conference just like this. And I wish to hell when he came to El Paso, someone would have stood up and held him to account and confronted him and shocked the conscience of this state into doing something. Because if we do nothing, we will continue to see this year after year, school after school, kid after kid. This Beto, one is on all of us. It's on every single one of us to do something. Beto, so he I'm here to stand up for the people of Texas. Meanwhile, inside uh, the press conference uh, got underway with uh, the Texas governor, Greg Abbott. There's no words that anybody shouting can come up here and do anything to heal those broken hearts. We need all Texans. To, in this one moment in time, put aside personal agendas, think of somebody other than ourselves, think about the people who were hurt, and help those who have been hurt. All right, that's uh, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this in a couple of minutes' time. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. So after that intervention from Beto O'Rourke that laid blame at uh, the governor's door, Greg Abbott reiterated his call for unity. Our job is to ensure that the community is not going to be ripped apart. All Texans must come together and support the families who have been affected by this horrific tragedy. But... How did this tragedy actually happen? The ability of an 18-year-old to uh, buy a long gun has uh, been in place uh, in the state of Texas for more than 60 years. Anybody who shoots somebody else has a mental health challenge, period. Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at NUI Galway and a political columnist with the journal .ie is on the line. Good morning to you, Larry, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, was that a satisfactory explanation for you? No, absolutely not. Uh, you know, the, the, the governor needs a, a reality check. Uh, you know, the re, and the reality is this. There are people all over the world who unfortunately have mental health issues, and and that's sad, and they need treatment, and I agree with the governor on that. But nowhere else do people with mental health issues uh, open fire and kill uh, little school children on a regular basis other than the United States. And the reason why they are able to do so is because they can access high-powered weaponry that has no other purpose uh, other than to kill lots of people uh, really quickly. And to be frank, uh, it's sickening to hear uh, the governor and also the, the senator from Texas, Ted Cruz, continuously say that let's not politicize this, let's not talk about the real issue here, which is access to guns. Instead, uh, let's unite and let's rally around the families. 
you know, those families do want people to rally around them, but I'm afraid that their response to these politicians in many instances would be uh, too little too late. I think many of us uh, would be worried about 18-year-olds spending too much time on their phones or would have other concerns in this country, at least. Uh, Can you explain to us what happens in Texas if somebody turns 18 and they decide they want to buy a gun or a rifle, a a long weapon, uh, I think you described it as? Well, once they they turn 18, they're eligible to get uh, firearms identification and to purchase uh, any weapon that's you know legally available in the state of Texas without uh, a waiting period, without a background check, uh, you know, really to walk into a shop and pick out whatever they like and walk away with it as long as they can uh, pay for it. Um, you know, and again, uh, Texas is you know one of the states in the United States with the most lax uh, gun control laws. Uh, the reality is, uh, in Massachusetts, my home state, uh, you can't do that, and as a result, Massachusetts has the lowest rate of gun violence in the United States. Uh, so, the, the, you know, to say one of the other lines that the, uh, you know, the, the NRA toadies who pass for, who masquerade as politicians, one of the lines they often use uh, is that gun control laws don't work, that even if you think they're a good idea, they're not going to stop gun violence. Well, the reality is that they do. And indeed, in this instance, if background checks uh, and or a waiting period was in place, which the vast majority of Americans want, if either of those were in place, uh, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation, uh, and so many of those parents wouldn't be aggrieved in the awful, awful, unfathomable state uh, that they're in right now. All right. Uh, it uh, is part of uh, the Constitution, the Second Amendment, isn't it, uh, going back to 1791. And I think the objective of uh, the Second Amendment was to preserve life. Uh, so there's something sort of warped about what's happening in America on an ongoing basis. Yeah, absolutely. It's deeply warped. And I think one of the things to note in all of this is, uh, you know, the trajectory of the NRA. Once upon a time, the NRA, the National Rifle Association, once upon a time, the National Rifle Association was a reasonable mainstream organization that I advocated primarily for hunters and sports people. And as you say, uh, there is a Second Amendment. There is a gun culture in the United States. It's different to uh, Western Europe. It's different to most parts of the world. But that really relates to uh, rifles uh, and handguns that people want either for hunting purposes or for uh, you know, or for it to defend their homes and their property. Uh, whether you like that or not, it's part of American culture. It's not going away. But where things have morphed to is the National Rifle Association now opposes any, any restriction uh, on owning guns. Uh, and as I say, the type of gun that this, that this young boy, I, I won't call him a man, he's mm. an 18-year-old boy, the type of gun that he used to carry this out, uh, and it is commonly used to carry out mass shootings, there is no purpose other for that gun other than to kill lots of people really quickly. As the president has said, uh, it is a weapon of war. And the fact that an 18-year-old can get one without a waiting period, without a background check, uh, is disgusting. Mm, yeah, it's disgusting to hear how you describe it, if you don't mind me saying uh, that they're commonly used in mass killings. Uh, but that is the point. Mass killings are common in the United States. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking hundreds. And Michael, here's the sad reality. Unless it's a particularly egregious incident uh, like this one uh, or like what happened in Las Vegas a few years ago or the horrendous uh, Sandy Hook shooting, unless it's on an, uh, you know, a particularly outlandish scale, 
they actually don't even make the news anymore. They're so commonplace. Uh, and again, the sad reality is that an awful lot of American politicians think that that is a price worth paying so that their constituents, again, can get their hands on weapons of war without wait, without a waiting period, without a background check. And you know, the, the sad thing is, Michael, we've had this, this conversation before. There's mm. a cycle here, and it seems to be never-ending. There's a horrible incident. There's grief. There's sadness. There's people pondering it as to whether this will finally be the impetus for reform. And what happens? Time passes by. Memories fade. Politics goes back to politics as normal until the next incident. We have the conversation, and the cycle uh, repeats itself, and nothing ever changes for the better. Uh, and again, uh, if in particular at the federal level, uh, I see no cause whatsoever uh, for optimism that even this horrendous tragedy uh, will have any impact on the gun laws in the United States. Mm, yeah, well, surely uh, the governor uh, should cancel uh, that uh, address uh, that he's to give to the NRA on, on Friday if there is to be real action. Uh, but you don't expect that to happen. I, I think probably over the course of time, you don't expect very much, uh, not anything tangible at least to happen. No, I don't. I mean, where I really lost all, all hope, Michael, was uh, there was an assault weapons ban that the, the Clinton during the Clinton administration uh, that was ushered in. Uh, however, it was a ten year it was a ten year uh, law that had a sunset provision. That is, that it would lapse after ten years. And again, that was necessary. Just to just, just think about this for a second. To get an assault weapon ban through the United States Congress, the only way they could do it was to compromise to the extent that this law is only going to last for ten years. So a mere 10 years in which you can't buy uh, a damn Uzi or whatever type of type of weapon uh, is covered under it. And after 10 years, that ban lapsed and there's been no action on it whatsoever ever since, despite the rapid increase uh, in the number of mass shootings as a result. So with that as background, with that as context, and also I think a key thing for listeners to understand is that to get legislation through the United States Senate, you don't just need a majority you need a supermajority. You need 60 of the 100 senators. Uh, so with all in that milieu against that backdrop, mm. uh, I see absolutely no cause for optimism, at least at the federal level. At the state level, maybe some things can be done, but certainly not at the federal level. All right. Uh, what do you think uh, the public view is on this? How do the majority of people feel? Uh, I heard the president and I heard other politicians say this only happens in America. It doesn't happen elsewhere. People have mental health problems all over the world, as you said yourself at the outset, Larry, but they don't go around uh, carrying out mass killings because they don't have uh, the access to this type of weaponry. How do people generally feel, do you think? Well, here's, here's the real, I suppose, democratic deficit with the United States, and it highlights some of the real problems uh, with American democracy. More than 90% of Americans favor background checks before an individual is able to buy a gun. 75% of Americans favor a 30-day waiting period between the time uh, an American asks for a gun uh, and then ultimately receives it. 60% of Americans want an assault weapon ban. More than half of Americans think that gun control, generally speaking, should be stricter. And yet none of that attitude, none of these sentiments of the American people uh, is reflected in the relevant legislation, uh, at least at the federal level. And again, that is because of the stranglehold that the National Rifle Association has uh, on so many politicians like Ted Cruz, like Governor Abbott, who effectively uh, they are bought and paid for and in hoc. 
uh, to the NRA. And if they dare to deviate from the NRA's agenda, what can they count on in the Republican primary? They can count on a challenger who will do the bidding uh, of the NRA and who have plenty of money uh, to back up his or her candidacy. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you, as always, Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at NUI Galway. Larry is also a political columnist with the journal.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, is with us uh, to talk about the use of uh, facial recognition technology. Good morning, Minister, and thank you indeed uh, morning, for joining Michael. us on the programme. Uh, will this mean that you'll be bringing forward amendments uh, to the Garda Digital Recordings Bill? It, it is, and that's exactly what I'm talking about here. So the Digital Recording Bill is a bill that will, for the first time, allow for body-worn cameras. This will allow Gardaí to wear these cameras, and I think it would be hugely helpful for them in detecting crime or fighting mm. crime. But, but also it, it doesn't include this technology, safety. so that will require amendments. It, it will, yes, okay, yes. So yeah. the, the, the bill itself at the moment is very strong on how we can gather data. So um, body-worn cameras, Mm. it strengthens our laws around CCTV, number place recognition, but where I feel it's weak is that it doesn't actually give the very strong powers or the ability to actually access this information. So we think of cases where guards have to literally sit themselves for hours and thousands of Mm. hours and go through CCTV. And obviously it's a huge amount of time, it's a huge amount of resources, but by introducing facial recognition for very, very specific types of cases, we're talking about child abduction, we're talking about child abuse cases, we're talking about murders, terrorist activity, that they would be able to use this type of technology to identify someone, but actually just to use it to support them in their work. So it would have to be verified by an individual and it could only be used as part of evidence for, you know, a a case where they would obviously have gathered a huge amount of other kinds of evidence. But Where will you get the the image of of people to add to the database? Minister? So there won't be a database per se really. What we're talking about is a specific case. So if you have, for example, a child has gone missing um, and, you know, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's somebody else that they know has taken them and you have a photo of that person, you can then use that photo to look through CCTV and to try and identify and to, to, you know, quickly identify where that person might be because obviously time is of the essence. Or if you have, for example, a murder that's taken place, um, you do not have a suspect, and then you identify someone and you bring them into custody, you can then use their face, again, as an example, to see if that person was there at the time or if mm. you have specific CCTV. So and those, those images database th- that, that people are going to be kind of all kept on this database. It, it would be very specific to individual cases. Those images will be deleted after the investigation? So uh, that's something we have to, to work through. But so it will be a database then, Minister? So it it will be a small database and that anybody who's involved in the investigation or who is a suspect. But I think where where the confusion is over the last day or so is that there's a sense that there will be this mass database of me and you and everybody else and all of our faces and that that will then be used, you know, where we can put a picture into it and and identify Mm. somebody. That's not what we're talking about here. That database will be used to track individuals. Uh, That database of a small amount of people will be used to track individuals across a public space. Is that not mass surveillance? Well, no, I don't believe it is. Um, I think mass surveillance would be if we were indiscriminately watching everyone and, you know, in some places, which is what we're not talking about at all, where they just use live CCTV and they look for incidents and they they scan crowds and and they maybe have pictures of people who have committed offences before. We're, We're not talking about anything like that. What we're talking about is a very, very specific case. Well, could this be any CCTV footage? 
So, I mean, what we have at the moment are two types of, of CCTV. We have Garda CCTV cameras and the bill that I'm bringing in will strengthen the powers for the Garda to be able to, to put in those cameras. And, you know, only last week or this week, sorry, on Monday, I attended mm. our local joint policing committee um, where the sergeant or the, the chief super, super, sorry, but informing us that there are going to be new cameras in Navin, yes. Yeah. So we, we have Garda cameras. We also have local authority and community cameras as well, which this bill will clarify some GDPR issues that have arisen in the past okay. and allow communities to, to work with local authorities and guard these. So, so you'll be able to track cameras that are already there. You'll be able to track any v- individuals on the database to all of those cameras that are, are there uh, already. That's mass surveillance, is it not, Minister? So it, it's mass surveillance would be as if we were watching everybody, if we had databases on everyone, if we were keeping an eye on everyone. What we are talking about is if someone is suspected of committing a crime. So where this is used really well in the EU and the UK and other places is around child sexual abuse cases, uh, where unfortunately, and, and this is something that I'm working closely with one of the European commissioners on, it has increased 6,000% in recent years, the number of child abuse images, the number of abuses that are taking place, but also it's been used in terms of terrorist activity and identifying people. So you have different police forces are able to engage with each other and are able to identify people through this. Mm. But it's very targeted. It's very specific. Mass surveillance. What, what, what if it's wrong? There and, and we were monitoring. What if it makes mistakes? Uh, because there are problems. Are, are there not, Minister, uh, about uh, its ability to uh, identify people it seems to be better at identifying black faces than it is white faces uh, there seems to be problems uh, between men and women difficult to differentiate uh, between ethnicities uh, and indeed genders so in the same way i suppose if if an individual or a guard is looking at cctv you're never always going to get it right there's always going to be sometimes a question mark we're not saying that technology is going to be perfect either and it's evolving all the time and that's why the law would not be specific around the type of technology you can use because it, it, it is getting better and improving. But this will only ever be an assistance. So it would have to be um it would have to be approved, it would have to be looked at by an individual, by a member of Angardashi Akana, probably a, an investigation or a detective mm. team, somebody who is trained in using this. And if it is not a matter of a computer you know, if if the technology, whether it's artificial intelligence or the, the facial recognition technology, if it's not correct, then obviously a decision can be taken. So it's not that okay. it would be used solely on its own. Could it be I mean, used? I, what, what's really important here is that there are safeguards. So the bill itself, when we're talking about body-worn cameras and the CCTV, there are a number of elements to it. There's the law, there's the tender and, and all, mm. all of the work the guards have to do, but there's the codes of conduct and we've spent a huge amount okay. of time there's, working there with qu- the Data Protection Commissioner. Yeah. There, 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 there are questions about how members of, some members, not all of course, but how some members of the force has, have conducted themselves uh, with uh, leaking data and the consequences of it in the past. You mentioned missing children. Could it be used to trace missing adults if they don't want to be found? Well, I, I suppose... There's a difference here, I think. If a child is abducted, obviously it's a child and that is a significant child protection issue. Um, If a person has gone missing um, and they are presumed missing and not just somebody who has left, then yes, absolutely. I mean, this is something that could be used. We know, I mean, look, unfortunately, there are situations where people go missing where um, there are mental health challenges, where there are concerns for their safety and, and fear from families. Um, but I think that detail, I suppose, 
I, I, that's not really where we're going with this, okay. to be honest. That's not what I'm talking about. And I know that's mm. situations that arise, but that's not actually what I'm talking about here, what we're talking about, criminal offences. OK, the ICCL so says... not going to be used in that situation. The Council for Civil Liberties says it, it could be counter to EU law. So I want to reassure anyone, any laws that we bring in would not be counter to EU law. So we're working very closely on the bill itself, which, as I said, is is hopefully going to be published before the summer. We've been engaging with the Attorney General, with the Data Protection Commissioner and with many other groups to make sure that obviously it is watertight, that it complies with all EU regulations. Okay, well, facial recognition is already in place within the EU. Okay, and they've also cited problems about facial recognition already available in the EU and how Clearview Intelligence has been scraping images off the internet illegally all over the world uh, and that there's many cases being taken against them and it's Clearview Intelligence who are to establish the system here apparently. Well, there's absolutely no decision made on anybody, so we are only at the stages where I'm going to bring forward an amendment. So it's absolutely not the case that anyone has been identified uh, for a tender or any type of equipment. Um, but I mean, I, I'm really clear on this. There would be very clear laws. It would be very specific. Uh, there would be codes of conduct, codes of practice. It will only be there to assist the Gardaí. It will have to be uh, identified, cooperated, uh, supported through the work of the individual Gardaí themselves. And I mean, we we have a fantastic workforce. We're celebrating 100 years from Garda Siakana. Mm. I mean, I think they are probably the best success story of this country since their foundation in 1922. Uh, and yes, they haven't always got things right, but I mean, they are there to keep us safe and to protect us. And for me, this is just about giving them the tools that they need. It's a very specific type of tool. It's very specific mm. type of cases. So again, I mean, you think of child abduction, you think of child sexual abuse, you think of murders. These are the type of cases we're talking about and it okay. will absolutely, absolutely have to be balanced with the right okay. to people's privacy and, and obviously sure. all the GDPR issues as M- well. Minister, sorry for cutting you short, but uh, we're pretty much out of time. Before you leave us, can I ask you about Our Ladies Hospital in Navan? An announcement is about to be made uh, about a 1.15 million euro investment in the hospital. Uh, is this an announcement, uh, a way of burying the news uh, that the emergency department is going to close? Well, if it is, it's news to me. Uh, No, this is part of a a wider capital projects and and wider capital um, announcement that was made or has been made today by the Minister for Health. So, I mean, if if you break down the 1.15 million, um, it's investment in elective surgery in Navan. Uh, There's investment in, I think, expanding some of the consultation rooms and toilets and separate spaces like that. Uh, And it's also investing in and upgrading what's known as maybe some of the Nightingale wards for male and female. So, I mean, this is investment. There are many other hospitals across the country that are receiving investment today. It's obviously very welcome. I mean, this, uh, you know, we, we always want investment in our hospitals, but this is in no way connected with anything to do with the A&E and I think uh, a date has been set actually for the meeting that we were to have uh, a number of weeks ago and you know obviously look forward to talking to consultants and and medical teams in the HSE and hopefully getting many of the answers to the questions that I mentioned uh, we, we have been looking for for some time. Okay, Minister, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. Thanks, Michael. That's, uh, the Minister for Justice, me, these TD, Helen McEntee. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Now let's speak to Peter Tobin, AIM2TD for Mead West and founder of the Save Navin Hospital campaign. Good morning to you, Peter Tobin, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Over a million euro to be invested in Our Lady's Hospital. Are you at all cynical about that announcement? Well, first of all, I welcome any money that's invested in our hospital. Um, And I think it's important to say that it is a good thing that uh, investment is happening uh, in our theatres. Now, when you put the one million euros up against uh, the the threat that the hospital is under in terms of the loss of its A&E, well, obviously, um, the the loss of the A&E is is the bigger issue by far. And uh, the fact that it's been timed now, would, would make you ask questions because I actually met with the Minister for Health yesterday um, and it looks like that June 13th, Monday June 13th is now the time where uh, local TDs will meet with uh, HSE big wigs to discuss uh, the future uh, of the A&E in Navin. So uh, these two, two announcements are being made roughly at the same time does uh, ask certain questions. There's no mm. doubt about that. Okay. A good day to bury bad news. Yeah, it's, you know, and, and this is the thing, the government have always uh, had a two-pronged approach to this. And they've always stated that they're strengthening on one hand the hospital, while at the other uh, end that they're actually <clears throat> looking to reduce the A&E in Navin Hospital. So, um, you, you know, the, the history of this, for 10 years, the government have been looking to close the A&E. They ramped up their, mm. their, their efforts just before covid uh, then COVID struck uh, and they postponed their efforts to close the A&E. Mm. Luckily, um, the A&E was there because the country was in massive need of uh, acute beds and uh, ICU beds. And then when the, uh, the uh, COVID started to recede back last September, they, they resurrected their objective to close the, the A&E. And then we, we had a massive march in the town, the 5th March, bringing 10,000 people onto the streets, which put a pause in the whole process. Luckily enough, again, because we had another wave of COVID straight after that, uh, which uh, put major pressure on beds uh, and a yeah. uh, services. So um, the, the government, are, I, I think, are, are, are playing with fire here. Well, the, the minister says uh, that what's happening with this money and how it's being invested will have nothing to do with the closure of the emergency sure. department. It's all positive. She said all of that. And she did also mention uh, that uh, the meeting is uh, scheduled and has been agreed, I think you said, for the 13th of uh, June. Yeah. Uh, but there's a, a very interesting uh, part to how this money is going to be spent uh, we had uh, a press release early this morning from Shane Castles about this, and he, he says that there's uh, going to be modifications to theatres uh, that will see an increased recovery area in the hospital. And that increased recovery area is going to make a second theatre operational for elective surgery and free theatres up at the matter. Uh, that would sound like part of the master plan. Yeah, so it, it, it basically, it, it, the, the plan here is for Navin Hospital to be a satellite hospital, if you like, mm. of the Matter Hospital. So if they're carrying out elective surgeries in the Matter now, they won't. Uh, so those patients will go to Navin uh, and uh, patients that would have been uh, dealt with in Navin uh, ordinarily will go to the Matter or the Matter will have greater capacity to deal with more patients at least. Yeah. And we have surgeons that come from the Matter Hospital to Navin to carry out uh, elective surgery mm. uh, currently. It's all part so of the it, same it, group, yeah. Yeah, so the, the point of this is that Navin becomes a, let's say, 
rather than it being a significant hospital in, in its own right, with its with its own function uh, and its own objectives, uh, that it becomes a satellite hospital uh, of the matter, uh, and that the, the matter hospital makes decisions uh, in how to reconfigure services in Navin to suit their plan. And um, so our objectives become secondary uh, to the objectives of the matter hospital, and the loss of the A&E is, is part of that. Uh, and, and the frustration I have with all of this is while, while the, the, the million euros is, is welcome, we're at a time where emergency delays are the worst on record in the history of the state. Uh, the people are waiting 12 and 13 hours now. It's estimated 90,000 people waited at least 12 hours to be admitted uh, to A&E last year. 90,000. And if you actually look at the NAVIN figures uh, in terms of waiting in A&E, in 2020, people spent an average seven hours waiting in A&E to get uh, treatment. And now they're spending 12 hours in the uh, hospital in NAVIN uh, to, to get, uh, to, to get uh, access to the A&E. Now, how any Minister for Health could stand over uh, the closure, the reduction of capacity mm. in any A&E service anywhere in the country at a time of record delays is just absolutely mind-boggling. OK, and well, I think you're probably going to get <laughs> the explanations, the logical reasons for doing that as the Minister sees it uh, on the 13th of June, uh, a yeah. little over two weeks uh, from now. There's a couple of things. Yeah. We, we, we are building up a significant level of health data uh, from the RCSI group, um, which will disprove a lot of the claims uh, we believe that uh, the Minister is making. And secondly, just to let people know that um, on Monday coming, this Monday at 8pm in the Newgrange Hotel, the Save Navin Hospital campaign uh, will be gathering. And I would encourage anybody that has an interest in the most important piece of health infrastructure in County Meath by far that, you know, they should gather, join with us on Monday because we're going to uh, roll out a campaign like the minister's never seen before. Uh, and if the minister, minister thinks that, that Navin and County Meath, the 210,000 people nearly that are living in this county, are going to be without an A&E in the future... The Minister has another thing coming. All right, we'll leave there. Thank you indeed, Peter Tobain, for joining us on the programme this morning. The chair of the Save Navin Hospital campaign, founder and leader of the Ain2 Party and a TD for Meath West. Now, let me bring you some of the comments, uh, the many comments that have been coming to us. I'm glad to say, great to be hearing from so many people today. John is in Drogheda and he says... What is it about America and guns? How many more innocent lives need to be lost before they change their laws? I don't know, John, uh, but it seems as things stand that probably a lot more is the answer to that question if those laws are ever changed. He says, I'd be terrified if I, have to send my, if I had to send my child to school in America. You'd be worried sick about a gun attack. As you said, there are people suffering with mental health problems all over the world, but you don't see massacres like this happening in other countries. God love those poor children and their teachers who lost their lives and their families. It's just horrendous. Thank you indeed, John, uh, for that. Uh, another call that comes to us today from Peter in Dundalk who says you can't buy a drink until you're 21 in America but at a young age you can buy a gun it's crazy it really is Peter and it's a very valid point you could have an off licence next to a gun shop you'd be refused service in one shop and you'd go in uh, to the next shop and buy an AK-47 or whatever you call these things that uh, kill a lot of people very very quickly Uh, Paul 
also calling us about American gun laws. He says it's easier to buy a gun than a Kinder Surprise egg in America. The law in America says uh, the small toy inside the chocolate egg is too dangerous for kids because of the size of them in case the kid swallows the toy. The toy is dangerous, but it seems a gun is not. It's a funny old world, all right, Paul. That's a very valid point. Uh, Thanks uh, for making it with us. Uh, We'd uh, Tony in Loud in touch with us. He says that just like in the Second World War when the Nazis were made to look at the piles of corpses being buried in mass graves, Ted Cruz and members of uh, the National Rifle Association uh, should be made to look at photographs of these children and see would they still be supportive of the arms industry and assault weapons for everybody. There's also a question he says to be asked uh, about the store that sold these weapons perfectly legal. Tony, I don't think there's any point in asking questions about that. They're supposed to do some kind of background check and a a mere look at someone's social media would often tell enough to refuse sale in many cases. This is the thing in Texas. No background checks are necessary. Uh, It should be remembered, he says, that when this Second Amendment was drafted the only question that uh, there was Uh, was, or the only weapon that was available was a single shot flintlock musket to protect one's property from intruders and wild animals which then roamed uh, the countryside. Absolutely no relationship uh, to the killing machines that you can buy very easily today. Thanks, uh, Tony, for making all of those very valid points with us uh, this morning. Eric is in Dundalk. He says he thinks uh, the Derry Hale Hotel in Dundalk beside Oriel Park Uh, should be opened up to accommodate Ukrainian refugees and local residents lying empty for at least 10 years. A lovely old-fashioned building. Thanks uh, for that. Uh, Erica, good to hear from you too. Uh, Somebody else in touch with us saying uh, we should be talking about issues in our own country and not the USA. Uh, that's to do with the guns. Uh, I think a, a lot of our callers <laughs> have been uh, very taken aback, moved, disturbed, upset uh, and horrified uh, by, what, by what we've seen uh, on uh, our news broadcasts over the last couple of days. And uh, I think it's safe to say that they would disagree with that sentiment based on the calls that are coming to us today. Somebody else saying, why is it only American people who need guns to protect their property? Doesn't make sense. Get rid of all of the guns, not only uh, assault rights rifles. Uh, Thank you indeed uh, for sharing that with us as well. Uh, Margaret says the US is a very sick country when 18 year olds can buy guns yet in some states at that age they can't buy cigarettes or alcohol Abbott and Cruz are gun hungry men who don't flinch when these murders take place. They are so common. I'm so glad I don't live in the US where the constitution allows these atrocities to happen by allowing guns to be bought so easily says Margaret. Thank you indeed for that on face recognition some calls to us about that one from Moll who says it's amazing we have cameras that can see a pebble on the surface of the moon but when it comes to identifying criminals we can't make them out it's unreal she says Tony and Loud has a, a different take on that he says the minister cited countries where this technology is being used you can tell her that these systems are also used to great effect in Russia, China and North Korea. And I think that speaks for itself, he says. Thanks, Tony. Pat Indrum Conrad says, full support from me on introducing face recognition technology for the Gardaí or any other aids that will help them to do their job. The only ones who won't like it are the abusers and dangerous criminals out there. Thank you, Pat. And thanks everyone who has been in touch with us today. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. LMFM. 
Now back uh, to her uh, job losses in Dundalk. Indeed, uh, the 307 jobs that are, are go- to go across the country in PayPal, uh, letting 172 people go in Dundalk as part of that announcement a couple of days ago. If you were listening to us yesterday on the programme, you'd have heard uh, the, te- the then... Uh, top person in PayPal here, Louise Phelan, tell us uh, about the recruitment back in 2012 and we were asking if that had anything to do with the jobs action plan at the time and the incentives that were given to companies like PayPal to set up and recruit in this country and then how we were asking yesterday if perhaps the government grants that went with that action plan have now dried up practically 10 years to the day since February of two. 2012. Let's talk about this now with uh, Labour Party TD for Louth Jed Nash, who's his party spokesperson on finance and independent TD, Peter Fitzpatrick. Good morning to both of you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, it was a shock announcement. I suppose that's the starting point for all of this, Jed Nash. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, there are 172 people based in uh, the um, PayPal Operation in Dundalk, who uh, looks at, unfortunately, to uh, lose their jobs. Their jobs certainly are at risk, and uh, our, our initial thoughts are with them and their families. There's never a good time, Michael, to lose a job, but particularly now with the high cost of living and the ever-escalating rises in inflation, it's got to be particularly difficult for somebody who's in the firing line. I had a very difficult conversation with a senior uh, PayPal executive on the phone on Tuesday. They made contact, as you know, with uh, all uh, local TDs to um, explain uh, what they described to me as a decision uh, and what I'd prefer to describe as a proposal. Uh, I had to talk through uh, the PayPal executive, uh, had to talk them through Irish law, essentially, to say that at this point in time, uh, your proposals are merely that proposals, they're not decisions. Um, and the consultation process that they're going to start engaging with the staff from tomorrow, the month-long um, legal consultation process shouldn't be a fait accompli. And I'm really disappointed, in fact, that the initial statement made by the Taunista, who's also a Minister for Enterprise and who's responsible for the IDA, uh, the, the, the statement that he made uh, on Tuesday uh, suggested that this was a fait accompli and he described uh, the fact that a good package would be made available as a positive thing. And of course it would be a positive thing if yeah. uh, when this you know, process concludes that the only option, uh, if they can't find an alternative cost-saving measure, measures uh, instead of job losses, uh, if it's a case that there's a good package on the table, well and good, but we, we, we shouldn't simply just yeah. preempt that. The Tanisha uh, also wrongly said that the uh, redundancies would be voluntary, uh, uh, and that mistake was repeated by Jack Chambers uh, in uh, the Chamber, uh, and PayPal have confirmed uh, that they will be compulsory. That's right, and I, I think they got off to a very bad start, uh, and they're not behaving in good faith. Um, the distinct impression uh, and the understandable impression was given uh, and understood uh, by staff and indeed by me uh, that uh, the um, process would involve in the first instance voluntary redundancy and it's always the case Michael that um, industrial relations practice would insist and best practice would insist and respect for your workers mm-hmm. would insist that the first thing you do particularly in a large organisation is try to identify if there's anybody in the organisation who might wish to be relocated within the organisation or who might actually take a voluntary enhanced voluntary redundancy package instead they've decided that they want to pull the trigger and introduce um, collective compulsory redundancies which are entirely different and you know yeah, they, and we'll come back to that in a moment because there could be a rationale behind that which could be linked to, to the grants and when people were employed uh, and it could be cheaper as well to lay off uh, people who haven't been in the company 
company longer than people who have uh, many years of service. Let me go to Peter Fitzpatrick though because uh, you've been waiting patiently on the line there uh, and thanks for joining us as well Peter. Um, what are your thoughts on all of this? Well first of all Michael, my first word Michael is disappointed Michael because uh, nobody's seen it coming and I really do feel sorry for the families and the workers there at the moment. Is, uh, we always thought that PayPal was a very safe job, a very steady job and in terms of PayPal they did, they did pay fair enough wages uh, I was contacted the rest of the TDs on Tuesday and uh, I, I was informed that there's 307 jobs lost in PayPal and in my own tenders and dogs, 172 jobs. And what's the, the biggest disappointment in this year, Michael, is that back in April in, in 2021, we lost 131 jobs as well. Mm. So basically in the, last 13, in the last 13 months, we lost 438 jobs. To me, that, that's not on. Like uh, when, when you mention the word PayPal, the, the word comes off trust. Michael, uh, I, I have an account with PayPal there at the moment, is, and I just, I, I just, I, I got onto the website there, and you, you mentioned your program there yesterday. Like last year, they had revenue of over twenty-five billion at eighteen percent. You know, an mm. increase on the previous year. Sure, it has and, to and be. I mean, you look, at, you look at what's happened since lockdown. Uh, uh, you know, so many people are shopping on the internet, and how do you do that? Well, quite often you use PayPal, so their profits at the, uh, have to be up. But Michael, even in the last quarter of 20, 2021, mm. I looked at it. 426 million people use PayPal. Mm. And when I mean use PayPal, Michael, and I mean the word trust, because there's people that use the PayPal, sorry, Michael, and they they give their bank account details, their credit card details, and they give their debit card details. Mm. And these are people, and all of a sudden now is, they're making so much money and everything else. And and the the disappointing thing is, there's rumours now that these jobs are going to be relocated to India. But that's why you can trust multinationals to do, to locate where it's cheapest uh, to operate from. Well, the, the, the one thing I will say, Michael, about the people in the dark and the surrounding areas, to, to me, they, they, they've great, you know, they've got fantastic commitment. Like they, mm. they kept the dog back there you know, in twenty in twenty twelve and created over a thousand jobs, another four hundred jobs in twenty fourteen. Mm. And these are good jobs at the moment, isn't it, Michael? And my big fear at the moment is, Michael, and I know it's mm. talking to people is people's actually afraid at this stage to open the front door, to open the letterbox because they don't know what's in the letterboxes. Yeah. Your utility bills, your mortgage, and everything's gone through. Well, the it's a disaster for Dundalk, uh, but I, I, I suppose the bigger picture is how bad is it going to get, uh, and will this be the beginning of decisions being made by all of the multinationals that are based in the town? Well, I, I intend, I, I intend to talk to the, the township today, and, and in fairness, like, like he shouldn't be taking it lightly as well because that's mm. the his, his consistency. Like PayPal has been given a lot of money since they came to this country back in 2003. Mm. And in fairness, Ireland has shown a great commitment to them there. So, like, come, come on around yeah. now. And we're all getting pay increases now because of uh, the rate of inflation, the cost of living and so on. Uh, and perhaps they're weighing that up uh, and they're thinking, well, you know, uh, we're here 10 years. And let's go back 10 years because, Jed Nash, uh, you would have been uh, very close to that uh, action plan o- on jobs and the benefits that it would have given to multinationals like PayPal at the time. Uh, would it be a case that they would have been in place for 10 years? Um, to the best of my recollection, uh, some of those grants, the, the grants vary. There, there, are, there are employment grants, there are research grants, there are equipment grants and so on that multinational corporations can attract from IDA. Yeah. And that's a key part of, of obviously, you know, Ireland's ambition it has been historically mm. since the establishment of the IDA. And the IDA does very well in attracting jobs mm. into and Ireland. And you get grants for, for recruiting people and you get free buildings you and you get all sorts of things. And you don't have to pay tax. 
well, the, 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 the tax rate for for, um, for for corporations, thankfully, is increasing, and we, we support that and will increase globally over the next period of time. But leaving that aside for the moment, there are employment grants that are available. It's very difficult, actually, to get information through the Department of Enterprise and IDA in terms of the amount of grants that an individual organisation has received. Uh, we get the global figures. I mean, the last set of figures I got suggests that it's about 1.5 million in employment grants paid to IDA support companies across the country in 2019. Now, they claw back that money as well, but they only claw back that money, uh, Michael, if a company closes. So, in other words... If a company continues to have a footprint in the country, mm. uh, then it seems to me uh, that uh, there's no requirement to pay back any of the grants that or have been Or if it's fulfilled provided. as part of the deal. I mean, I presume exactly. it's a, a deal uh, uh, and I don't know, but uh, I, I wonder if it's a coincidence that we're exactly 10 years on from the first recruitment campaign in Dundalk. And this is what leaves me a, a little bit suspicious. I'm, I, I'm in contact with the IDA to, 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 to understand a little better what their function in the process was because they have been practically silent uh, over the last few days. I haven't seen a public statement from IDA. There's been a public statement by the Minister Enterprise. We've all raised this in various forums representing the people of Dundalk as best we can and the people of Loud because they're a significant employer, not just in Dundalk, but there are many people from Adrada, RD and across the mm-hmm. region who work on PayPal and depend on PayPal for, for, the, for their incomes. So we need to get to the bottom of this. And what the IDA strategy actually is for uh, now more broadly, I'm a little concerned because there have been a considerable number of job losses in Dundalk, especially in IDA-supported companies over the last couple of years. We're still reeling from you know the 100 uh, 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 job losses in, in National Pen. And that was a process that wasn't handled very well, in my view. Uh, and we have had a small amount of idea back uh, jobs uh, announced in Drogheda recently in BD, a company that's been here for 60 years. So no new investment in Drogheda. I've looked under the bonus as well, Michael, of the kind of quality of investment that's taken place in, in this region. Uh, and we're actually low down the list uh, in, in the Mideast region. We, we straddle the Mideastern border region. Uh, you're, you're less likely to be uh, working in an IDA-backed job in Louth than you are in most parts of the country. Okay. And also the quality of job uh, is, is is not what we were originally attracted into the region, we'd say, 10 years ago. And I'm concerned about yeah. that. And OEA okay. need, I think, to, to, to look very closely at that. Maybe a hundred times more likely, though, that, than you would be in County Mays uh, because uh, of uh, the spatial strategy and so on. Uh, well, no, uh, actually, uh, the, the layout is now included in the Mideast region, so we're actually included Mead, Kildare and Wicklow. Okay. And actually, IDA job job numbers in, in those areas are relatively low. Forgive me, Jetta. Uh, uh, I'm well. starting to run over time and I want to give some more time to Peter Fitzpatrick if I, I can. What are the next steps uh, or are there many options at this stage, Peter Fitzpatrick? Well, Michael, one thing we can't forget, Michael, there's still over a thousand jobs in the dogs that PayPal has given and, and, and in fairness, we, we, like, what, the, the, my biggest disappointment was uh, PayPal contacted me on Tuesday and they told me on Tuesday that if I needed any more clarity to, to contact them. So they gave me a mobile number. So I contacted PayPal this morning and PayPal just told me, listen, basically they're making no more statements whatsoever uh, and they will get back to me as soon as they can. But we just need a bit more clarity, Michael, is we have to make sure that these thousand jobs that we still have in Dundalk and the surrounding areas, that we have to make sure that that's concrete. And I think it's very important that we sit down, we sit down with PayPal, we, we see what the plans go in the next five or ten years at the moment. And uh, I'm probably a bit different than Jed at the moment is, I, I, don't, I, I think to make money, you have to invest the money in. And, and in fairness, the government has invested a lot of money over the last number of years in PayPal, and they've given a lot of jobs. But it, it, now, all of a sudden, the money seems to run dry. And it, 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 we basically need to know is, are we being used by multinational com- companies in this, in this country? That they, uh, they, they get cheap rent, 
to get maybe a lot of money towards paying the employees and everything else. Are we getting a, are we getting a fair crack at the web? So I think it's very, very important we sit there and with PayPal, who, as I said to you earlier on, is the people that the Dawkins Vernon areas have given full commitment. These, these are jobs that no one thought we would, we would lose there at the moment. But uh, I, I, I kind of disagree there with Jed there, because... I think multinational companies have been good for the surrounding areas of country there at the moment, is, and especially in the dark there at the moment. Is. But I just think is I think the best way to communicate is, is sit there and, and express our disappointment in the way these 172 people have been treated. Okay. If you go back to 2014, and in fairness, uh, there, there was, there was, there was uh, 121 redundancies, and PayPal offered a redundancy package and also gave an opportunity to relocate within within the, within the, within the, within the, the uh, PayPal. Mm. But now, all of a sudden, now in 2022. These jobs are being made redundant with, 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 with no voluntary redundancy. So basically what they can do is they can go away and pick Peter, Paul or John at the moment and say, you're mm. gone. They can pick and choose. And as far as I'm concerned is these people who maybe been working in PayPal in the dark since 2012 have given 10 years service in that day. Like they should be treated a bit more fairly than they are at the moment. Okay. So I think it's, let's sit there. I can, I can hear the doll bell calling you to the chamber in the background there, Peter. Uh, I'm not sure if there's uh, any chance for either of you to raise this. Uh, it's only been raised once and uh, it was Jack Chambers who responded and his response was incorrect, uh, which means the doll record uh, is incorrect uh, because uh, I'm sure... Uh, it was based on the information that he and the Tarnashta had when Leo Radker spoke about this in Davos. Uh, they were of uh, the opinion that uh, the redundancies were going to be on a, a voluntary basis. Now we hear they are going to be compulsory. People are, are going to be let go uh, and there won't be any discussion uh, about that. Uh, will there be any discussion in, in the doll either of you, uh, Jed Nash or, or Peter Fitzpatrick? Yeah, it, it, the, the, uh, I was every intention of why we can get the opportunity to do it um, in terms of doll schedule. Um, I'm raising these issues consistently. Mm. Um, I would say this, and just Michael, in conclusion, go back to uh, the question of voluntary versus compulsory redundancies. When I got a, a, a screenshot of an email sent to a staff member yesterday uh, describing actually why, in very contentious terms, why a voluntary redundancy package wouldn't be proposed and you know, why then the alternative would be compulsory redundancy. I'll read this out to you because okay. I think listeners will be stunned. Uh, it's headed voluntary redundancy and they say voluntary redundancy can be difficult for employees as it increases the uncertainty and duration of the process. Therefore, we've decided not to offer it uh, on this occasion. That's an extraordinary uh, statement to make. There's not, nothing actually more difficult, uh, as Peter described, uh, than being actually targeted and saying, you, you and you, mm. you're losing your job with no mm. explanation. Especially, uh, if you're twi- especially if you're 25 and you're thrown on the dole uh, in comparison to somebody who's, let's say, uh, 55 uh, and thinks, well, you know, I could take a package and do something else or retire or whatever the case may be. high-handed attitude of the company here, really. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, okay. it's quite extraordinary. It's breathtaking. They got off to a very bad start mm. uh, with confusion around okay. voluntary versus compulsory redundancies. Okay. Peter Fitzpatrick, I, 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 I think actually yeah, I I, I'm way over time. Peter Fitzpatrick, please, sorry. To correct the record. Okay, Michael, Peter. You, you did ask yeah. a question, Michael, about yeah. raising the dog. Yeah. Michael, I'm going to be honest, Michael. I'm going to lead this question today at 12 o'clock with the, the Tornstar. And I've given the commitment to talk about uh, free medical cards for children between 6 and 7 years of age. But I will be at the end of that day, I will ask, I will ask the Tornstar uh, what, what his plans going forward in helping these people either get training or get the proper pay, uh, redundancy mm. package. It's like, you know, these, these people have, I said to you, and the grants. Commitment. I'm going, oh, Michael, listen, Michael. It's, it's, it's a package, but I just said is we we also have to be Michael uh, realise too that there's still over a thousand jobs there at the moment. Okay. Dog, a thousand jobs, a lot of jobs. 
Mm. And we have to be sure that, that these people feel safe and like, they're not going to go home and start to panic. Okay. We'll watch that closely and I'm sure we'll hear the response from the Tanisha uh, to you. You'll be putting those questions uh, to him in Leaders Questions, which begins at 12. We'll hear that tomorrow on the programme, as I say. And thank you indeed for joining us, both of you, for that matter. That's uh, Peter Fitzpatrick, Independent TD for Loud and East Mead, and Labour TD for Loud and East Mead, Jed Nash, who is his party spokesperson on finance. Michael Reed on LMFM. 569 two-bedroom apartments will house 2,000 Ukrainian refugees in Laytown. If the application gets planning permission, let's uh, speak uh, to local councillors, uh, Fina Falls, uh, Stephen McKee and Sharon Tolan of Fine Gael. Good morning to both of you and thank you indeed morning, uh, for joining us. Morning, uh, Stephen McKee, you're opposed to this, are you? Well... I need to say is that, you know, we all recognise the, the, the trauma and suffering, you know, Ukrainian people have gone through over the last number of months. Um, and I think as, as, a, as a country, we, we've proudly stepped in, um, you know, and, and, and um, in welcoming thousands of, of Ukrainians, you know, fleeing and escaping the war. Um, we should take in as many refugees as we possibly can, Michael. Um, we've a moral responsibility up as much as we can. Mm. Are, you, are you going to get around to saying not in my backyard? Well, we need to ensure, Michael, that we use the right locations, types of accommodation, and that there's community buy-in from the start, because we okay. also have a responsibility to ensure that... So, so you are opposed to it? We pro- well, I haven't actually seen the, the, the file because of the... But I do have concerns on it, and, and my concerns uh, simply are in relation to, well, obviously, first of all, the scale of the development. Um, it's a huge uh, proposal for 567 mm. um, um, uh, homes. Um, and, and I think well, you went to the bother of writing a, a statement that runs over an A4 page uh, saying that it isn't realistic. Well, it's not realistic because we have to be re- we we have to be honest with people and honest with the people we represent. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Stephen. We're going to have to try and improve on your line, and uh, I would like to hear from you, but we can't really hear everything that's been said because the line is breaking up. Let me go to Sharon Tolan. Um, what do you think of this application? I think it's very early days um, to, to make a, a decision one way or another on, on, on whether or not it's a good idea or a bad idea. Um, my own thoughts on it, uh, as it stands, you know, there are more questions than there are answers. Um, you know, it, the, the land is owned for for um, employment use, E1, E2. I'm not even sure if an application of this um, type can be uh, validated by Mead County Council. It's still at the pre-validation stage, so this application may not even be validated. Um, it's adjacent to an SAC, the Nanny Estuary SAC and SPA, um, so has the full environmental impact assessment reports been completed. Um, it is a huge development, 569. Now, while I share Stephen's comments there in relation to we really need to step up to the place and be prepared to step up to the plate in relation to yeah. accepting Ukrainian people and, you know, the issues that that will cause within our society. I'm not in favour of segregating people in any manner. And I'm certainly um, concerned in relation to whether or not this is actually, you know, an, an, a brand new direct provision site. Do you know what I mean? Um, there are more questions. I have more questions than I have answers, okay. I have to be honest with you. So even speaking to you this morning... Is, is is quite premature, I suppose, because okay. all of the reports are not up there. You know, they do need to be assessed to see whether or not it will even be a valid... It sounds like you're leaning against it. 
I, I, 569 is, is massive, mm. Michael. I think that has to be acknowledged. Um, you know, that, that has the potential to be a significant increase mm. in our population. And, okay. you know, as long as the proper provisions are in place, I, you, you've had me on many times mm. over the years in relation yeah. to school issues. Yeah. Um, but you Peter, know, you will forgive people listening who aren't in Leytown for saying this sounds like nimbyism, not in my oh backyard. Oh God, well, well, no. I mean, anybody who knows me, you know, I've yeah. fully supported social housing, large social housing schemes here, right by, beside my own home. Yeah, I know, uh, but know, they were I, talking I, about scrap when, when we, I think we have about 35,000 refugees uh, here yeah. so far, but I mean, they were talking about 100 or 200,000. They were talking about throwing planning laws out the window uh, and developments yeah. like this would have been commonplace had that been the case. Yeah. And yeah. we all would have had to have accepted it. Oh, absolutely. But, but as long as, I mean, as I said, the application, as long as the application has the meets the needs of not just the Ukrainian refugees that w- that will come or need to come, um, and w- obviously long term because if and when this war ends, it's going yeah. to take an awful long time to rebuild Ukraine, and I would hope that Ireland will be to the fore in assisting the rebuilding of of, of Ukraine. Yeah. Um, but people are are going to have needs long term and they're going to need to be and assisted to integrate into our community. Okay, but come the 1st of July, come the 1st of July. Can I just make my point? I'm not sure if if building um, what essentially I would see as a direct provision campsite uh, outside of the town on the other side of Mm. the railway bridge is the way to go. Now, if I'm proven wrong, I will welcome them with open arms myself, but I just need to read those reports and that application and and uh, and see the, the thought process behind it. Okay, but uh, would it be better than tents in Gormanston? Oh gosh, well, as far as I'm aware, you know, the, the opportunity in Gormanston is very, very short term. Mm. Uh, so people yeah. may need to go there. They haven't been there yet, yeah. uh, but they may need to be there to go there to, to okay. be processed and, and moved okay. to appropriate accommodation. But the clock but is ticking down here, to the clock is the ticking down to here. the end of June when the state's contracts run out with the hotels and the B and Bs, uh, and if people keep coming at the rate that they are coming, which is about 250 a day, you could soon find five thousand people with nowhere to stay apparently yeah and I'm, and I'm constantly speaking to people who still have not heard from the Red Cross in relation to their offers of accommodation mm. so there are still lots of things that need to be addressed at a national level uh, this at a local level needs to be assessed and looked at and, and, in, a, and in a pragmatic uh, manner and approach I am not opposed to it and I can tell you that categorically I'm not opposed You're to not it for it though. because I'm not for it because I haven't mm. read it <laughs> so I mean I, you know, I've had an onslaught of of um, of uh, commentary and obviously contact from from people who are really, really concerned. And what I want to do is gather the information, people, so, so that they can make mm. informed decisions instead of knee jerk reactions. Make informed decisions about whether or not um, it is a suitable site and that we could integrate um, whatever number of people that would would fit into five hundred and sixty nine. Uh, single story 2000 apparently yeah. Yeah. well mm. you know I, I, I would I would imagine that's debatable depending on on, on family uh, you know circumstances um, and whether or not you have single persons mm. and well mum and dad ma- ma- I mean, well it won't be dad obviously but yeah probably okay. mother yeah, 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 yeah and, yeah, and children or, or yeah, older yeah, people yeah, per- perhaps yeah. who, who have who have made the, made yeah. the journey mum and uh, gran and the two kids uh, you'd soon have yeah. 2000 people okay Stephen yeah. McKee is back uh, uh, on the line um, Stephen uh, I'm sorry for uh, cutting you off that time, but the line was breaking up. I, I hope you understand that. Yeah, uh, no problem, Michael. Yeah, uh, so 
do, do you have this concern about it being a de facto uh, direct provision centre similar to Mosny? I do, yeah. And I think, you know, the site in question has been identified as a strategic employment site and it's owned as, as, as a strategic employment site. And we have to be realistic. I mean, the reality is we've the lowest jobs to workforce ratio uh, in coastal East Mead, in County Mead. So we've the vast majority of people in that area, Michael, are commuting to work outside the area. You know, this site here is, will be vital in helping to create local jobs in the late town, Bettystown, and the coastal Mead area. And, and, you know, we need to reduce the levels of commuting outbound. Obviously, we've got a lot of people now working from home, and that's a great benefit, because that'll all help improve the quality of life for families, promote a healthy work-life balance and so on, provide local jobs into the future. So I think we should be maintaining that current zoning as strategic employment site on that site. I think that's vital into the future for the, for, for the, for the well-being of, of the community. I think we what, really what needs to happen is a long-term plan the government and how we're going to accommodate Ukrainian refugees. As I said... Where, though? Should... We should take in as many as we possibly can, but we have to be realistic in how many we can take. We do have an issue. Uh, there's an issue there with the number of, of local hotels um, in terms of you know accommodating mm. refugees and the amount, because yeah. that has a negative impact. On so them. then you leave it to Poland or Moldova? No, we don't leave the Poland. A couple well, of years ago... Well, then you leave them in Ukraine? No, we don't leave you know, them. They have to go somewhere. That's the point. Yeah, but we are, well, we have to be realistic about the numbers we can accommodate. That's what I'm saying. We do. A couple of years ago, Michael... We've we 33, 35,000 people in this country. There's a million in Poland. Yeah, but the population per ratio, if you looked at the, the ratio of population of Poland, they have a huge population. They're a very big country. We have to be... I mean, we're looking here, Michael, at putting 500... You're, you're talking about a few thousand people. And, and, and you know, I'm conscious of their, 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 their situation and so on. But in my mind... It, 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 it's irrelevant nearly in terms of, uh, of the nationality, in terms of what we're looking at here is a massive housing development on a site that's been zoned okay. for employment in the area. We have to be realistic. You know, we have an issue in East Mead in terms of services. The area has improved in the last number of years. We've the new Spine Road, we've the new library coming on. But there's severe shortage of school places, Michael. We've lack of special needs resources for children. Okay. People find it difficult access health services. No, I know. I know. These, these are Mead. the challenges. And, and, and these are challenges for East okay. Mead. And, and, and the county development plan has it. The focus has to be on improvement I'm out of time, Stephen. I'm sorry to cut across you. The the Polish population is just under 38 million, but I have to leave it there. Uh, Thank you indeed uh, to both of you for joining us. Stephen McKee is a councillor for Fianna Fáil and Sharon Tolan, a Fine Gael councillor in County Meath. Michael Reid on LMFM. It's four years since uh, the Eighth Amendment uh, was repealed and, as you probably know, a review of how the laws allowing for abortion to be made uh, available to women in this country is under review. The abortion rights campaign, ARC, has made a submission on this. Doreena Murray is the co-convener of the abortion rights campaign. And uh, I take it, uh, Doreena, that uh, you don't believe the laws are working very well for women in this country uh, because you're leading up to a protest that will take place in September. Yes, we have an annual protest uh, every year in September to mark uh, Abortion Day. Um, and, yeah, what we are calling for this year, which is what we've been calling for for many years, is free, safe, legal, uh, local and accessible abortion care. Uh, we raised our concerns at the time during the referendum when mm. uh, the government decided to release legislation um, about what uh, barriers would be in place and that's exactly what's happened with the legislation four years on. And, we and have the There's a lot of problems, aren't there? I mean, I think there's about 15 health institutions that don't provide uh, abortion services. Uh, just one in 10 GPs uh, will be able to facilitate women if uh, they seek help. Yeah, one in 10 GPs. There's... Um, 
11 out of our 19 um, maternity hospitals the, uh, that are providing. So that means there's eight that aren't, which are all under the Department of Health remit because they're HSE hospitals. Um, you know, we're just recently during the campaign for the National Maternity Hospital, we were told to believe in this golden share that the minister has, but here he is with his remit on the hospitals and he can't even make them provide legal health care. Um, okay. Access. I think the minister would argue that point. Sorry? I say, I think the minister would argue that point. Well, like, this is what we're at. It's four years. No, I mean, I think that the minister has said clearly, the government has said clearly that all services uh, that are legally permissible in the state will be available under the new National Maternity Hospital. But all um, services that are legally permissible at the moment in the state aren't being provided by HSE hospitals. Mm, Okay, that's a a valid point, yeah. You know, we're like, we have to look at what is the reality and that's the reality that we face it to today. And there is many things that the government could do to uh, improve that access, like safe safe, um, access zones, which we were promised four years ago and we're still waiting for. Uh, The minister says he has legal advice to the contrary of why he can't. Mm. um, Constitutional problems and unintended consequences. But he hasn't shared that legal advice, despite us asking. And we have many um, ex- legal experts who say there is no uh, issue with um, p- putting in safe access mm. zone legislation. Well, the right to assembly. I mean, there are constitutional uh, contradictions at times and it can be very hard to understand. But uh, I think uh, it's to do with that sort of thing. But like people have a right to access health care without being mm. harassed and intimidated. Oh, absolutely. And I think most people, the vast, vast majority, agree with that. Uh, but uh, there could be a constitutional restriction on it. Uh, and maybe it needs a, a, an amendment to the Constitution and a referendum to achieve that. Well, like, you know, even looking at the HSE data that was released by the National Women's Council yesterday, it was horrifying to me to read that the HSE didn't believe there was a, a geographical issue or an access issue mm. across the country, when clearly there is, and there is an urban-rural divide again. Mm. And again, it's a two-tier system where women and pregnant people who have resources and access to GPs um, can access and, ha- and know that they're pregnant in time, because we have arbitrary time limits, can access the care they needed, and those who don't are left in a situation where they're being forced to travel or access unsafe abortions. Mm. And, and doctors are afraid to provide uh, abortion services uh, for fear of the backlash. For fear of the protests that yep. we have already seen and the uh, horrific graffiti that has been already uh, placed to put among GP services and safe access zones could prevent that. Um, you know, even of the 408 GPs that are um, providing services, only 246 are listed for the My Options helpline because they're afraid of being found out of who they are. You know, it's it's a it's a dire situation that we're in, and something that could be resolved. And um, there just doesn't seem to be any will in the government to do it. Mm, well, time will tell, uh, because uh, this review is underway, uh, and perhaps uh, there uh, will be some amendments made to, to the legislation. Perhaps not, uh, Drina, but uh, time will tell, as I say. And thank you indeed for joining us on the program this morning. Drina Murray is the co-convener of uh, the abortion rights campaign. Arc brings our program to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional grade industrial supplies, count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.